Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this privilege, this wonderful opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you for providing us this unity that is really ascribed to you from eternity past. It really is yours to give, Father. We're so very grateful. As Scripture says, uh, we're thankful for everything always. There's so much blessing in that posture, Father, that Again, it just fills us with gratitude that we even have such a posture to take by your grace through faith. All of that, of course, started when you saved us, when you sent your son to cancel out that debt against us, and for that we are most grateful and thankful, Father. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, why are the apostles so encouraging? Jesus chose them. That's a darn good reason. Uh, Sunday's lesson was chock full of wonderfully edifying principles. For starters, up here on the board, relative to unbelievers, I was thinking about this, and this has come up a lot. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, in my own personal studies as I'm reading the Bible in the mornings and just thinking about uh, how to go about the Great Commission and what some of the roadblocks are, frankly, that we might run into. Um, The basic reason, though, why someone rejects the gospel is because its foundational premise is that they realize that a person needs a Savior. If that doesn't happen, there's no repentance, there's no issue, there's no implied chasm between themselves and God. If you don't think you need a Savior, then you're really not going to seek one. And so that is something we have to consider when we're trying to evangelize people. Um, You can give them facts about our Lord, you can give them facts that are... um, clearly stated in the Bible, but unless they're at that point, unless the soil is tilled, if you would, unless they're at that point in their own walk, if you would, where they believe they need a Savior, then it's a different discussion. That's the whole point. It's a different discussion. Um, If a person never rightly reconciles the chasm between themselves and the sovereign God of the universe, they will miss this point altogether. They won't believe they need a Savior. There's a very real impetus, in other words, for salvation. And you have to remember that when you're out there evangelizing people. There's a very real impetus that God provided for we evangelists. And that is something that He does, that He enacts. Because remember, as Romans 1 says, He makes Himself known to everyone. And so we ought to be grateful that he's sort of tilled the ground, hopefully, before we get there. And if not, maybe the next time we try to evangelize that person, or the next time. But until they get to that point, uh, it's not going to happen. Now, if we consider why anyone in their right mind would ever say no to the free gift that is salvation in Christ Jesus, we must minimally consider something beyond the human flesh, even. The following that this kind of evil, I don't need a Savior, 
has a champion. It has a champion. Satan's ploy is to get people believing that they are righteous without God's help. Or at least enough, at least enough to gain entrance into heaven. Even the end goal is perverted, as if getting into heaven was the end goal. So his ploy is to get people believing that they're righteous without God's help, at least, you know, enough. If you ask most people, especially in this area, play their game for a moment. Are you going to go to heaven? Are you going to, you know, well, I think I'm good enough. I, I think at the end, um, if, you know, my good outweighs the bad, I think God's going to let me in. Oh, man. That is horrible. Is 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 horrible. But Satan propagates lies, stating that if you're self-righteous enough, you certainly don't need Christ's righteousness, do you? Huh. Of course, the point is, if you never receive Christ's righteousness, you'll never be saved. And that's a problem. So, just as homework, I almost took you to this passage, but we didn't have time. Homework tonight, I know, homework, huh? I want you all to go home tonight and this weekend and grab just the first two points that I've given you so far. I've only given you two points so far. Grab them off the website, write them down, whatever it is you do, um, but they're going to be on the website an hour after class or before. Grab them, and I want you to think really long and hard about Christ's personal ministry. I want you to think about who Satan stands against. I want you to think about um, why unbelievers even exist. Why they persist. And as you do that, I want you to read Matthew 13. All of it. And ask yourself the following question. Up here on the board. As you're doing that, take the first two principles and this one. As you're doing that, I want you to read the whole of Matthew 13. Ask yourself, after reading through Matthew 13 all at once, without stopping or pondering doctrines, what the nature of Jesus' parables were. What was he talking about? What was he doing? Think big picture and think simple. And there's a hint for you. Consider membership, not membership types. Consider membership, not membership types. In other words, when you read this magnificent passage of Scripture, don't spend any real time on trying to discern every last nuance. We'll be doing that in the future anyways. What the Spirit wants you to see is what the topic of discussion actually was that Jesus was focusing on. And if you read Matthew 13 with the faith of a child, and even, I challenge you to do this, I do this myself. Read it as if it was the first time you've ever read it. I mean, really, forget everything you think you know. Just read the thing and, and, and stop stopping at this verse and that verse and stop taking, you know, 40 minutes to read a single passage. Just read it as if it was the very first time you've ever read it. It's a wonderful exercise. You might be surprised what jumps out at you. And you'll see Christ's heart as plain as day. All right, so that's your homework this weekend.
If you care about your spiritual life, you'll do as the one in authority has instructed you to do. Oh, and just in case you forgot, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. I just asked you directly to do something. I gave you homework. It's not like I'm asking you to memorize my personal life. I'm not asking you to come visit me. I'm, not, I'm only asking you to read Scripture, which is well within my authority. So I'm not going to hunt you down. Sometimes I'd like to. But I'm not going to do that because it's still between you and the Lord. But he has commissioned me and he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. This is the word of Christ after all. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. As the Spirit taught us on Sunday, here's why he wants you to complete this particular homework assignment. It's to realize fully what Scripture has to say about true discipleship in Christ Jesus. It's not that difficult, but he wants you to understand it. Up here on the board, I'll give you this, the gospel hope. You want to talk about true discipleship in Christ Jesus? Think about this. The gospel is everything to a believer. Everything. It really is. Just think about it. Without the gospel, you'd be nothing. You'd be destined for the lake of fire, which you would deserve. You'd have no hope. Just think about that. We were, I think I was talking about that with Tammy the other day. Think about a life without hope. You all have hope beyond the grave. Just think of a life without hope. Where the heck does that even leave a person? I almost feel like crying right now. I'm not going to do it. Because that, that kind of destitution, that kind of a condition, is, is to me, is horrific. How do you live in this life, in this ridiculous world, without hope? The gospel is everything to a believer. Any hope of deliverance at or after being saved is a function of this one reality. That's why Paul said it's the very power of God for salvation. It's from faith to faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. In what? The gospel. It's the linchpin of our lives. It's interesting because when I think about where the Spirit has taken this ministry and you know, we're getting close to a decade now. Um, I think about where I used to be and where you all used to be. I once had a friend of mine tell me years ago that I was beginning, this is interesting, I'm sharing, this is, you know. I had a friend tell me years ago that I was beginning to sound like one of those evangelical church pastors. This was after a brief discussion about the importance of the gospel and how everything we teach ought to be constantly tied back to it. That's what I was saying. This was early in my pastoral career. I'm not even sure if I was ordained yet. And at the time, being a young pastor, quote-unquote, I sort of conceded my position. Now, here we are over a decade later, 
And all I can say to myself is that the Spirit had reached out to me years ago. And I allowed partiality for another man to quench him. In other words, I saw the writing on the wall. What I'm teaching you now is something that the Spirit tried to impress upon me over a decade ago. And I let someone else convince me that I was kind of losing my way. That it wasn't that simple. Go to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. I'm just sharing. I know some of you probably can relate. I don't know. But maybe you look back in your own spiritual career and say, you know, I do remember when the Spirit was trying to tell me it's, it's got to be simpler than that, my friend. It is simpler than that. That He was trying to redirect you to the Gospel and get you to hold on to it with full might. All your heart, your soul, your strength. But yet you too allowed partiality maybe to another person get in the way. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then what's next? Do not quench the Spirit. That's what I did in the past even regarding the Gospel. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. You know what a prophetic utterance is? You're reading it. It starts with the Word. Do not despise prophetic utterances. For us, that's the Word of God. We have a whole book full of them. (laughs) But, check this out. Look at verse 21. Examine everything carefully. It doesn't say rationalize it into complexity. It just says examine everything carefully. I mean, you know, just because God says examine this thing right here. Oh, can you believe it? Oh, everybody say a prayer. (laughs) Hey, stay on topic. Can you imagine? Look how simple this is, right? If he said examine that thing carefully. And, you know, you'd say, all right, well, it's a doorbell thing. It's got a little, maybe a little sticker in the back, probably a battery. All right, it looks pretty good. It's this big, you know, it's white, whatever. Whatever, okay? But the intellect is going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me get a screwdriver. Whatever <laughs> shit, it's just a measuring and a protractor, and they got, you know, soldering guns and voltage meters and, you know, Geiger counters and whatever. Look, examine it carefully just means take a good look at it. What does it do? Honestly, what does this thing do? If I press this button, a blue light goes off in the back in case I ever lose my patio. That's the way David can take over and flip slides. That's all you really need to know. <laughs> it just means examine it carefully. Don't, don't look at it and say that's Blistex because it's not. So... Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Up here on the board. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21-22 in the Amplified. But test and prove all things until you can recognize what is good. Until you can recognize what is good. That means keep reading your Bible. 
Don't overcomplicate it unnecessarily, but keep reading it until you can recognize what is good. To that, hold fast. Abstain from evil. Shrink from it and keep aloof from it in whatever form or whatever kind it may be. But test and prove all things until you can recognize what is good. Not until your pastor can recognize, not until the friend that you're partial to can recognize, until you can recognize what is good. Again, in the New American it says what? But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Just a little more on this very important statement up here on the board. Examine everything carefully. Never take anyone's word at face value. I'm telling you this. Examine the things you hear from fellow man carefully, lest you be lazy and accept false doctrines as truth. A man who stands for nothing falls for anything. Never take anyone's... Look, what if I just fell off the deep end? Me. And I started telling you lies, and you were all too lazy to check. Whose fault is that? Oh, it's totally yours. It's yours. Well, what about the spirit saying, hello, the dude's off his rocker. You need to, uh, you know, maybe run away, Forrest. Examine everything carefully. But that takes so much work. I know. I know. What you'll find is that honest shepherds, like myself, actually, get this, you ready? actually want you to take the things that they teach and go to Scripture on your own. I really do. I want you to take what I say, listen to it, and then go cross-check it. Right, wrong, or sideways. A good heart can never be disappointed with a person who's seeking truth. Obviously, the disclaimer is, don't be looking for ways to try to prove me wrong because you're a jerk. <laughs> I'm talking about, no, I'm being serious. Because those people exist. It's ridiculous. Like, yeah, I don't like him, so I'm just going to do everything I can to prove him he's wrong. Like, shut up. Go away. That's not the point at all. But a good heart, my heart, I can never be disappointed with anybody that's seeking the truth. So listen closely, please. In my experience as a shepherd... I'd much rather hear of a person who's a little off, who I believe is a little off in their thinking, but still earnestly seeking, than a person who's clinging to every word I speak like gold and hardly, if ever, seeking at all. I'd rather, I'd rather have a contend with the first person than deal with this blob of a person over here who's got no regard whatsoever for their own spiritual well-being. Now, if I was a maniacal person, I'd say, of course I want this person, because then I can just be like a cult leader and lead them around. But I'm not that guy, and no one worth their salt is that person. And that's how you can, that's the great litmus test. If I was to die tomorrow, I'm telling you right now, find somebody who teaches Scripture, and find somebody who says the same thing I'm saying right now. You challenge me. You go to the scripture yourself. 
And if that person is trying to separate you from the Word of God, run away. There are whole religions that do that. There are cults that have done it. Anybody that tries to separate you from this and tries to weasel their way in between you and this, you need to run away from. Been there, done that. You know what? I know what the Bible says about seeking and finding. Which is why I'm convinced that part of my job is as a cheerleader of sorts. I don't know how good I look with pom-poms in it. Hey, everybody's like, you're not one of those people that we throw up and catch. (laughs) But I do know what the Bible says about seeking and finding. And again, I feel like a cheerleader of sorts. I just want you to jump into the Bible and read until your heart's content. I want you to see and experience the glory of God. I want you to be set free the same way I've been set free. And frankly, in any other way, far beyond that even. Now for some of you, especially over the past couple of years, some of the things I've taught you have upset you a little. Got you questioning the veracity of my messages even. And to you I say, so be it. Honestly, I say, so be it. The only way that person will ever become settled again is to hit the books in the Bible and find the answers they are looking for. My confidence is that when that person does that, God the Holy Spirit will reveal to them what it is they need to know. The truth. And that's all I really care about, my friends. As Jesus said, John 8.32, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So, again... Examine everything carefully. Never take anyone's word at face value. Examine the things you hear from fellow man carefully, lest you be lazy and accept false doctrines as truth. A man who stands for nothing falls for anything. That's why the Bereans, for example, are so encouraging, along with their interactions with the apostles. Go to Acts 17.10. Acts 17.10. Well, what did they do? Acts 17.10. I just want you to seek. You may take a crooked path. You may be bouncing all around for a while, like a ping pong ball. Been there, done that myself. But you know what I believe? I believe if you seek, you will find. That I believe. Acts 17.10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. You see what they did? So, you know, the mighty Paul and his sidekick Silas go to these people in Berea and give them the truth. And what do they do? They examine the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, if Paul were a lesser man, if I understand Paul the way I believe I understand Paul, he was probably elated. Remember what he wrote? He said, I'm not even there and I'm hearing about your tremendous faith. Do you remember when he wrote that? He loved to hear about others' faith shining. 
even when he wasn't around. Examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. How many of you do that? Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Isn't that something? They believed even after they examined the scriptures for themselves. Well, what is it that you believe? What, what does it take for you to believe? What do you believe? I gave you a whole, one of the dots and the T's that we crossed at the end of the gospel series was believing. There were a few lessons on it. Why? To prove to you in scripture that there are different kinds of belief. That people believe in all kinds of things. But look at what they believed in after they sought out the truth for themselves. And look what happened. They were saved. <laughs> so here's my point up here on the board, and I don't mean to talk about myself. This is really not about me. I hope you realize that. A shepherd's heart, a true shepherd is not interested in his sheep doing anything except following his God-given, I apologize, God, for not putting that as a capital G. Can you mark that down, please? His God-given ability to lead them to truth. That's it. The act of believing Holy Scripture is an issue between a sheep and the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. It really is. My commission is to be the bus driver. I drive you around. That's my God-given commission. If I say, with the authority of this pulpit, read Matthew 13, then read Matthew 13. Okay? That's my authority. But my authority is not to make you believe. That's between you and God. That's an authority issue with Him. Again, look at Acts 17, 11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. On Sunday, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 to amplify the very nature of Jesus' ministry, that is, to seek and to save the lost. That's in Luke 19.10, up here on the board. The gospel linchpin simply stated, either Christ is who he said he is, or he's a liar, and we're all doomed. Well, what do you see when you read Scripture, when you act like a Berean? What do you do when you examine things carefully? Do you see truth or do you see a liar? Here's the principle format I gave you on Sunday. We believers never fully depart from the gospel, as Paul alluded to in Romans 1, 16 and 17, not just because we love it so much, we do, but it represents the theological linchpin to our faith. God saves us based on the merits of Christ. If Christ is a farce, then so is our faith. That's what we learned. And I was supposed to change that, and I didn't. It's supposed to be 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 17. I'm getting a look from somebody. <laughs> Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 13. Greg. <laughs> Greg's like, I changed it on the, on the website, just saying. Slacker. All 
I'm like, when those emails come across, I'm like, yeah, it's so awesome. They're so faithful. And then I do nothing about it. <laughs> First Corinthians 15, 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. This was the, obviously the logical argument that Paul was running with. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Ouch. I gave you some things to think about up here on the board from McDonald on the resurrection hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the righteous basis of our salvation as well as the foundation of our living hope. As sinners, we had no hope beyond the grave. And then F.B. Meyer said this, calls the living hope the link between our present and future. The link between our present and future. Again, verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. In other words, you see what's going on there. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's a pretty graphic description of, I would say, a desperate situation. If Christ was not resurrected, a lot of things unravel, especially the gospel. Again, the principle being amplified is up here on the board. We believers never fully depart from the gospel, not just because we love it so much, but it represents the theological linchpin to our faith. God saves us based on the merits of Christ. If Christ is a farce, then so is our faith. Now, the crux of our lessons this past week have been on prayer as a function of how Jesus chose his apostles in fact, knowing that Jesus prayed the whole night to his Father before choosing the twelve ought to be yet another reason for us to be encouraged. Jesus chose these men after consulting with his Father, our Father in heaven. And he never made a single mistake. Just think about that. He prayed, he consulted with the Father, and he never made a single mistake. And we can learn a lot from Jesus' prayer life. That was the crux of Sunday's message. First, we noted this. Jesus prayed before choosing the apostles. Remember, Jesus was a human being. As a human being, he had to increase in wisdom. Luke 2, 40 and 52. He often prayed to his Father in heaven before completing a next step in his ministry, like choosing the first 12 apostles, Luke 6, 12 to 13. Go to Luke 6, 12. Luke 6, 12. <clears throat> we can learn an awful lot about Jesus' prayer life. 
Luke 6.12. Now in this case, unlike other cases, say John 17, we don't know exactly what was said. But we know that through the proximity of it and then the choosing of the twelve, that this would have been something that he was talking to God, the Father, about. Luke 6, 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountains to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he, had, uh, he also named as apostles. So what we can conclude up here on the board is this, Relative to Jesus' ministry, prayer was a large part of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 26, 42, Luke 6, 12, John 17, for example. Not only did he pray persistently, but he also instructed his disciples to do the same. Matthew 6, 9, an effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. That's a big statement. Please don't underestimate that statement. And that's why I gave you so much scripture, and there's so much more. On prayer, um, there's over. I think I quoted this this past week. There's over 250 um, hits on the word "pray," prayer, praying uh, in the Bible. So there's an awful lot of scripture on the topic of prayer. An effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. I mean, if you never pray, how do you who <laughs> who are you consulting? Your human rationalism. I mean. You know, there has to be some heartfelt, deep, abiding fellowship with God the Father. You have to go to Him in humility. That's not something you do when you're driving down Route 95 and you're late for work. It's really not. It's not something you even do with your spouse or your best friend or, you know, prayer groups are fine. But we're talking about a real prayer life between you and in our Father in heaven. Jeremiah 33.3, Matthew 26.41, Mark 11.24, Luke 11.9, Romans 8.26, Philippians 4.6, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, 1 Timothy 2.1-4, James 5.16, etc., etc., etc. Again, an effective ministry, you're all ministers, by the way, cannot exist in the absence of prayer. Let me give you some alternative translations of some of the things we saw on Sunday. The Amplified, Jeremiah 33, 3, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you and even show you great and mighty things, things which have been confined and hidden, which you do not know and understand and cannot distinguish. Think about that. God knows everything you don't. There are certain times in prayer where he's going to reveal certain things. Do this, don't do that. Think this, don't think that. I don't know. But if you don't call to him, if you don't go to him in prayer persistently, what do you expect? What do you actually expect? That's what James said. That's the duke dipsukos. What do you actually expect? You ought to expect nothing. Seriously, if your prayer life is zilch, you really ought to accept, expect very little, if not nothing, you know, practically speaking. But yet, we're so greedy 
And we're so self-absorbed and selfish and self-centered. We expect everything in the absence of this one thing called prayer. And what does this person do? First time, as soon as they're disappointed with the plan of God, they go to God in prayer, moaning and groaning. Why don't I have this thing? Well, if you've been, if you were praying all along, I would have guided you in a different direction, but you're too stubborn and too egocentric and too self-absorbed to even listen. So you get what you get. Oh, that's in the Bible too. Now that we're talking. <laughs> that's Jeremiah 33.3. Mark 11.24 in the Amplified. For this reason, I am telling you, Whatever things you ask for in prayer, in accordance with God's will, darn it, I want to win the megabucks. That's not God's will. For this reason I am telling you, whatever things you ask for in prayer, in accordance with God's will, believe with confident trust that you have received them, and they will be given to you. And that's even a little teaser of you know, God's omniscience, God having already um, afforded you blessings from eternity past. He knows exactly every blessing you're going to get in time. So as long as you're in accordance with God's will, then you've, you might as well just say, I already have it. I just don't have it now, but eventually he's going to give it to me. Whatever that thing is that's in accordance with his will. Philippians 4, 6 in the Amplified. Do not be anxious or worried about anything, but in everything, every circumstance and situation, by prayer and petition, with, with thanksgiving, continue to make your specific requests known to God. I heard uh, recently uh, uh, someone said that um, they felt dumb for asking, about, asking for prayers on a certain subject. Well, this is for you then. Continue to make your specific requests known to God. God's not too busy for any of it. James 5.16, the Amplified, Therefore confess your sins to one another, your false steps, your offenses, and pray for one another that you may be healed and restored. The heartfelt and persistent prayer of a righteous man, a believer, can accomplish much, when put into action and made effective by God, it is dynamic and can have tremendous power. Hmm. Again, Jesus knew this. Jesus was teaching his disciples to live this way. Prayer was a large part of his ministry. Not only did he pray persistently, but he also instructed his disciples to do the same. An effective ministry cannot exist in the absence of prayer. Prayer is, please don't make this doctrine, but I was struggling with the right words. Prayer is like breathing to a believer. Just oxygen, just, it really is. Prayer is integral. In light of something like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, and a multitude of Scripture, we must think of prayer as an integral part of the whole. Without prayer, the whole could not exist or function. Rejoicing, praying, and thanksgiving are born of one root. Therefore, they increase and exist 
simultaneously. And we walk through this. If you're thankful, you pray. If you pray, you have joy. If you joy, you're thankful. It's one sort of ball of wax. And here's where we find our encouragement in perspective. If Jesus prayed often being perfect, why in the world wouldn't we, his disciples? It seems asinine that any of us would ever not make prayer a top daily priority. Yet most Christians have their priorities messed up. And you notice I... Look, if you haven't noticed it, whenever that, whenever there's a possibility that some that are following, so-called following Jesus and going to church aren't even believers, I'll use the word Christian. If I'm really making a point about just believers, I'll typically say believers. But there are a lot of Christians out there that don't have any priorities at all aligned with God. And that's a whole nother problem. It's kind of funny when you think about it. Why wouldn't? Just think about it even more practically. Why wouldn't? I mean, knowing you have access to God 24-7. He's the only one who's never going to let you down. He's the only one with the power to deliver you from whatever your problem is today. Um, Why wouldn't you go to him? Well, there's only really two answers to that, and that's between you and the Lord. More specifically, we might add, Jesus chose his apostles. Jesus prayed a lot, and his apostles took notice, often writing it down as Holy Scripture. Jesus prayed all night before he decided to choose the apostles. In his humanity, Jesus was seeking the righteous discernment of his Father. Thy will be done. He's the one who said that. Thy will be done. So those are the things that we can um, think about when we think in terms of encouragement, that Jesus chose these individuals. It wasn't just a, okay, well, you, 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 and you. It was after much discernment, much contemplation, much prayer even that he chose these so-called, you know, unexceptional men. And then we must remember one last truth about Jesus, the Son of Man. Go to Philippians 2.5. Philippians 2.5. Just one last thing. Philippians 2.5. <clears throat> Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we have an encouraging verse. You can tell that Paul's trying to encourage his readers to have this same attitude in themselves that was also in Christ. This is his encouragement. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, we call that his own humiliation, coming down out of heaven, becoming like a man, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What this means is that Jesus took on the infirmities of man in terms of human weakness. 
he took on the infirmities of man. In his humanity, he was, as we say in Latin, posse non pecari, up here on the board. I gave you a refresher on that on Sunday. This idea of the ability to sin. God, non posse pecari, these are Latin phrases, not able to sin. A spirit-filled humanity, posse non pecari, able not to sin. And then the human flesh, of course, non posse, non pecari, not able not to sin. It's all it can do. What Jesus showed us was a spirit-filled, 100% spirit-filled humanity. And so, but he was still able not to sin. It wasn't that he wasn't able to sin because he was temptable. So the potential was there, but he was able not to sin. So this is encouraging and would have been for his apostles too, since they saw him praying often. Now, if he's our prototype, then we may consider this as well. As a function of his praying, Jesus never made a mistake in choosing the apostles. Even Judas Iscariot was a choice he made at the behest of his Father in heaven. And as I ended with on Sunday up here on the board, Jesus chose you. He chose the apostles. He chose you. The sheep hear his voice, and they what? They follow him. He calls you. With that said, it's time to walk a little further. That's where we ended on Sunday. With our study of why are the apostles so encouraging, we will now prepare to move from Jesus chose them to our next topic, which is namely, by grace they were prepared. He chose them, but by grace they were prepared. It's one thing to choose. It's another thing to prepare. And then it's a third thing even to send them out. So there's sort of phases that the Spirit's going to walk us through. And in each phase, we're going to be encouraged by what we see with the apostles in their life, what was going on, who they were. What, did he ha- what do you mean he had to prepare them? He had to prepare them. So we're moving from that to that. In other words, up here on the board, by grace they were prepared. Not only did their natural abilities have nothing to do with the Jesus with Jesus choosing them, but they had nothing to do with their preparation for ministry. In fact, their natural abilities handicapped them. Just like us. I mean, this is part of our encouragement. There's such a thing as, um, you know, uh, negative reinforcement. There's two ways of teaching someone something. Positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement. Not only did their natural abilities have nothing to do with Jesus choosing them, but they had nothing to do with their, excuse me, preparation for ministry. One of the worst things, I mean, one of the worst things any minister, whether you're standing behind a pulpit or you're out in the street or you're just evangelizing family or whatever it is you're doing, if you're trying to do that in your flesh because you're like, but I, you know, I'm like a Fortune 500 speaker at work. I talk to large crowds. So every Thanksgiving I'm going to get together and force everybody to sit down. I'm going to like preach the gospel to them with my eloquence. I'm going to wax poetic and I'm going to do this. I'm going to be, you know. Um, that's a stumbling block, most likely. That's you trying to do something with something you came to the table with. Now, that's not to say that God won't use a well-spoken individual 
to preach the gospel. He may, he may not. That's not the point. I hope you get the point. Not only did their natural abilities have nothing to do with Jesus choosing them, but they had nothing to do with their preparation for ministry. In fact, their natural abilities handicapped them. We're going to see this. As we'll see in Scripture, there were several times recorded in Scripture where the apostles' human abilities proved to be inabilities spiritually. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in a war, all right, um, you have to charge a hill. You take the hill, your family lives. Which one of the disciples, which one of the first 12 do you want to take with you? I'm taking Peter. Because he's like Joe charges at everything. Charge up this hill, down that hill, over there. He's just going to charge. What did, Satan, what, did he, what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. What did he do to the, the, the Romans? The, what is it, the centurions? Um, cut his ear off. Do you know how, do you, have you ever know, do you know how many people were actually there? What did he think he was going to do? Are you going to kill them all? Right? Not to mention he was thwarting the plan, God's plan for Jesus Christ. I mean, so he was obviously that guy, um, which is great for battle scenes, but not so great in certain other circumstances. I don't want you to cut off ears, Peter. I get, I'm going somewhere, you understand? So, you know, natural abilities have a tendency to be handicaps. We tend to think because we're assertive by nature that we're supposed to be assertive with the gospel always. We tend to think that because we're this, then we need to be this with the gospel always. Or if we're that, we have to be that. Paul himself wrote what? I have become all things to all men so that I might what? Save some. So you can't just assert your natural abilities as the the de facto approach. So by grace, they were prepared. It probably stung a lot for Peter to hear, get behind me, Satan, from the man he knew was the Lord. It stung a lot, but that was part of his training. It had to be done. Right? Sometimes you have to get corrected and it hurts, but it has to be done. So it's interesting that natural abilities handicap us in our own ministries. As we'll see in Scripture, there are several times recorded in Scripture where these human so-called abilities prove to be inabilities uh, spiritually. As we'll notice, speaking of, with Simon Peter, and it's not really something I'm going to teach as a core doctrine, but as a bit of fun, he is often called Simon when he's being fleshly and or tending about worldly things in his flesh. But he's called Peter when he's being righteous. It's pretty fun. Not always, but most of the time. We'll get to that. But for now, let's establish a few ways in which the apostles' natural abilities were insufficient for the commission they were eventually given. It was impossible. Jesus couldn't have said, all right, I'm going to make you fishes of men. Now go! They'd be like, I'm going back to my nets. Someone happens to stroll by, I'll tell them about Jesus, but I'm going to be out in the water because that's where I am. You know? Maybe they would have tried to net them. I don't know. You never know. Do we, don't we gaff people on our own? 
like figuratively speaking. So keep in mind the following sort of paradigm, let's call it, phases if you would. Sending the apostles out, we're going to use this as a somewhat of a working framework. Jesus called them, we've seen much of that. I gave you even the order and um, the four passages that order them or that list them. Um, the three groups of four and the leaders. Jesus called them. Jesus trained them academically and what I call on-the-job training. In other words, it wasn't just a classroom setting. If, if anything, it was probably more even of on-the-job training. And then Jesus sent them out. So keep these three basic phases in mind throughout this series, for we are already a part of it, as you may already have realized. Again, for our next topic, we're talking about this point up here on the board. By grace they were prepared. Not only did their natural abilities have nothing to do with Jesus choosing them, but they had nothing to do with their preparation for ministry. In fact, their natural abilities handicapped them. Now, that don't make a doctrine out of that, because we're also going to see that Jesus chose them knowing that Peter was going to be the leader. And he had certain, let's say, characteristics about himself that would be usable. Um, but we have to make a distinction. We need to understand when and how the apostles' natural abilities were insufficient for the commission they were eventually given. In context of our curriculum, it wasn't enough that Jesus simply called a gang of unexceptional men. Before he left planet Earth, he made a point of training them up. If he was going to send them out as his personal advocates, they needed to be straight on a lot of things first. What we'll see in Scripture is not a lot unlike what we see even in the world. For example, and I think I'll close with this example. For example, the local high school, uh, Dighton Rehoboth over here, has a really good vocational program where things like auto repair and carpentry and culinary arts, etc., are taught. It's a wonderfully thought-out program, and they're constantly trying to improve it, to which I believe our own Deacon Johnson is a board member consultant, given his uh, expertise. But the value, think about it, the value of a vocational program is that it doesn't just send a future carpenter out into the wild blue yonder without any real usable skills. What happens is that a student is able to take classes and even go out on the road to work on real housing pro uh, projects while in school. That's invaluable. So by the time a vocational student graduates high school, they already have the basic skills necessary to be successful. This is like how God the Holy Spirit trained up the apostles through Jesus, their instructor, and then continued to do, uh, do so through them as individuals after Pentecost. That was the bestowing of the Holy Spirit within believers. So what we see with Jesus is that he trained his apostles both academically, but also with on-the-job training. And just like the vocational kid that enters into high school only wanting to be a carpenter, they graduate with skills. And by the grace of God, it's amazing that some of them survive the ordeal with all their fingers and toes in check. Is that true? 
It's true. It's amazing. Let me finish with this then. It's amazing that some of us graduate with all our fingers and toes. Some of you are like, nope. <laughs> I can go live in Hawaii like this. It's true, right? It's amazing that he uses us. We're goofy little freshmen. You know, we come on the scene. He saves us. There's a little cockiness maybe in the beginning. We think we're all that. You know, we make a mess in the shop. People like shooting boards off of walls and nails into each other and goofing around and, you know. And by the time senior year comes around, we got some polish. And maybe we're even mentoring. But we're out there, aren't we? Building houses, spreading the gospel, sowing seed. Uh, I think of um, uh, Bristol Aggie, where they teach agriculture. I mean, that, there's a lot of science in agriculture, a lot of science. And you have to know how to sow a seed. And that's what he's doing for us. He's saying, I want good sowers to sow the good seed. Well, you don't show up with those skills necessarily. You have to learn like you're doing this evening. And so all he's saying is, look, we can be encouraged by the apostles because they showed up the same way. Really no skills. Maybe some natural skills, but that proved to be a pain. Many times a roadblock, a stumbling block for many of them as they exerted or asserted them uh, in trying to do God's work. Um, they showed up the same way we showed up with little or no skill whatsoever. And yet he trained them up through academics and going out and they came back and you see this sort of itinerant evangelism thing going on. They go out, they fall down. We don't have the faith. He's like, you, if you only had the faith of this mustard seed, gee. You know, and they come back and forth and they left. So that's where we're going in our lessons. Um, and again, our next topic is by grace they were prepared. Amen? All right, let's bar heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful privilege to gather together as family, to, to break the bread that really does sustain us uh, in, the, in the, most, the way most important, Father. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for imparting it to us. Thank you for giving us the time and the space and the energy and the perseverance even to partake in a, a meal like this one. We just ask your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.